Come to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're involved in an ongoing study. In fact, we have been for many months now, and we've come to the fourth chapter of Peter's first letter, 1 Peter chapter 4. The very next section of verses for our consideration, of course, then provide our scripture reading for today. And I would like us to read the scriptures together at this time. We're going to begin at verse 12, 1 Peter 4, 12. And today, Lord willing, we get to complete this chapter by reading and studying through to verse 19. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first... What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. May God add his blessing to this word. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, your wisdom is great. And so often it exceeds our ability to discern the good in some of our circumstances. We are so hindered by our earthbound perspective. And when you tell us that there is a joy to be found in the experience of suffering and hardship, frankly, Lord, we struggle to exercise the kind of trust you desire and deserve. So thank you for testing us by the manifold trials we endure, because in hindsight we confess that it was in and through the difficulties that our faith has grown and proved to be that genuine faith which could only come down from above. And it is in that realization that we do rejoice, knowing that you work in mysterious ways, never to harm us, but only to refine us and make us more like Jesus, who himself suffered the cross and thus gained the crown and with it eternal glory. Like him, you have placed us on a Calvary road of self-denial and even great hardship, telling us in advance that this is the way to an eternal glory beyond our comprehension. 
Remind us of these things often. Today, speak the assurance of these things to our hearts. We ask in Jesus' overcoming name. Amen. Christian brothers and sisters, in recent weeks, we have had bloody reminders that following Christ can be deadly. Just this last July, brothers Rashid and Sajid Emmanuel were murdered outside of a courtroom in Pakistan where they had been charged with blasphemy. Their crime of blasphemy, you ask, what was it? They were preachers of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then last week, most of us have followed the media on this, I think, Taliban militants in Afghanistan killed ten aid workers on a Christian-based medical mission. The Taliban claimed that the victims had been evangelizing Muslims. And so... They were worthy of death. Now, the Christian aid organization vehemently denied that the workers, though most of them were believers in Christ, were careful not to engage in evangelistic work, but were only offering humanitarian aid. But, brothers and sisters, I want you this morning to be thoughtful with me for a few moments about a disturbing implication in how these concerns were addressed by the mainstream American reporting. Media keeps saying the medical workers were not proselytizing. Okay? Okay, but does this say somehow that even if they were sharing the gospel of Christ, it is okay if they were murdered for that reason? Follow me now. Even non-Christians will grant that the men and women who lost their lives for treating eyes were demonstrating their humanity in loving Afghans by their good works. But how is it that this love for Afghans somehow turns into a crime worthy of death when witnessing Christ enters an eye clinic? Evangelism, even in our own American media, is apparently perceived as an arrogant disregard, maybe even a hateful thing, to share with the Afghans the gospel or anyone else who does not believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. We listen with 
understanding what's being said, we have a reason for the future of the gospel. The freedom of its proclamation right here in America. How long before it becomes arrogance for us to share Christ with a neighbor or a co-worker? How long here in America before the gospel is considered a hate crime instead of the good news which proclaims the very love of God for sinners? I sense the foreshadowing of these things. There are many more places in the world today where ministers of the gospel are at great risk for imprisonment or even death for doing what we are doing right now here in this little village of Inglewood, Florida on a Lord's Day. When Peter says here in chapter 4 and verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. And as we shall see, the particular ordeal that we are called upon to endure is directly linked to our identity with Christ. Literally, our sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Now, no doubt, Peter's doctrine of Christian suffering, which is all throughout this letter, this suffering for the sake of Christ, is really simply his interpretation, if you will, or an application of what he himself heard Jesus say. Here's what Jesus said in Peter's day. If the world, that is the unbelieving world, hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you, says Jesus. And he observes that if you were of the world, why, the world would love its own. But... Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Did you catch that? Persecution comes. Suffering in this fallen world comes to the Christian because, Jesus says, you are among the elect. It is because I chose you out of the world that the world hates you. Now, beloved, if salvation, frankly, were more a matter of choice than it is of effectual divine calling, I wonder how many would choose for Christ. As though Jesus was saying, and he did, he made it clear Choose me, and boy, you will suffer. In fact, the world you live in will hate you. Now, you could choose the world, and the world will just love you. Jesus made clear, didn't he? The one who follows me will take up a cross. 
He will die daily as it is to this hour. Some who follow me, we saw it this very last week, may even be killed for the cause of Christ. The offer of salvation is free, but it will cost the true believer literally everything. Without such trials, without such testing, how will we know that the faith we say we have is, whether it's little more than just pop Christianity, until that faith is tested on the anvil of hardship and suffering, of being rejected, simply because... You are among the chosen. It is an irony that one of the assurances of true salvation, who would not want to be assured even time and again or doubly assured that I really am among the redeemed, that I am a child of God. To me, it is something of an irony that one of the assurances of true salvation is linked to the quality of our relationship to this fallen world. That is, Peter says, you can know you belong to the Lord if there's a few people around who absolutely despise you and revile you and hate you and in some places in this world would kill you because they know you are mine. If your faith has never really been tested by what Peter calls a fiery ordeal, One might question whether it is justifying faith at all. True Christianity is a costly thing. But be encouraged, Peter would say, brothers and sisters, even in the pain, or maybe even because of it, he says there is joy. Verse 13, look what he says. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also, at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Peter is saying there is rejoicing now, which is only a foretaste of the kind of rejoicing we will know at the end of our Calvary road. Jesus comes again, those true believers who've paid a price for taking up their cross and following Jesus, even the most staid among us will all become holy rollers. This will be a joy expressed with exaltation. The the challenge will be who can outshout the other with their hallelujahs. It'll be those who have paid the most, suffered the most. No doubt that it'll be the loudest. But dear friends, never forget it will be the wounds which speak the loudest. The pierced, outstretched hands of Jesus, gathering all the bruised and battered saints who sought the crown the right way, who sought the crown by coming the way of the cross. 
I think if it was my place, and it's not, to indict our present generation of the mass of American professing Christians, I would say that the way we think about our Christianity is that we are too often after the crown while thinking that we can avoid the crosses. In fact, we ask God in our prayers to take the crosses away and to just bless us. We can't avoid the crosses. We'll never know our faith is true. We can't. I say this on the authority of Scripture all over the place. All those who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer trouble and trials. The ultimate authority on this is again Jesus Himself. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. There's that joy again. I have overcome the world. By the way, these hard things are not just always persecution because of our identity with Christ. It's really everything in this world that has somehow become so much harder since the day we first believed in Christ. Because this world is no longer home to us. So let us understand this this matter of putting the word joy in the same sentence as suffering does not make us oxymorons. Joy and suffering, or as the title of my message says, the agony and the ecstasy. In fact, in 18 different New Testament passages, listen carefully, that's a lot. In 18 separate New Testament passages, suffering, the agony, and joy, the ecstasy, appear together. And in the many or most of those 18 passages, suffering is often the direct object or the cause for the joy. That's not not that we love pain. We are not called to be Christian masochists. But rather, the joy of knowing that the pain is the one sure way we know we actually are united and in active fellowship with the resurrected Christ. If you haven't caught yet what I'm saying, dear professing Christian, if you don't have a boatload of trouble going on, you may want to examine the quality of your faith. For the joy that was set before Jesus, for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross and his children do the same. Tried and true believers are those that are more than willing to walk the Calvary road because they know in their hearts that it is the only path which, in fact, will cause them someday to rise from their coffins to an exaltation of joy.
and the winning of the crown. A short way to remember this for all of us, just think this. No cross, no crown. And yet at the same time, isn't it true? Every crown won will become the offering we cast at Jesus' feet. Right? Because it all comes from Him. He permits and allows as a sovereign God the very trouble with which we struggle. And He gives the reward for a faith we didn't initiate from ourselves, but that which came down from above. That's why we really mean it when we say all glory, all honor, all praise be to the Lord. He gives us a crown, welcoming us home. We very joyfully cast it at his feet. But now there is more than just joy at stake here. I want you to look at verse 14. Peter says, if you are reviled... For the name of Christ, well, let me pause and say, if you're someone who can't seem to bear the thought of anyone ever not liking you. Now, I, I want to confess to this weakness. I was chatting with someone this week and I recall those words coming out of my mouth. And in fact, I think I was sharing about this, the struggle I had sometimes being a preacher of God's word and having to say some hard things. And then I freely confessed to that person and I repeated here, you know, basically, I like people to like me. But if we like that too much, we'll never rise to this occasion would be good for all, all of us to be reviled a bit. Because he says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, verse 14, look what he calls it, a blessing. You are blessed because it is apparent if the world hates you, if the world reviles you, it must be because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. They crucified him. Do we expect better treatment? So you and I pray for boldness, do we not? It takes that. You dare to own Christ, not secretly, but actually to speak of him to others, to share the meaning of his death and resurrection to someone who needs salvation. And that's everyone you meet. And then somehow you're blown out of the water for it. Maybe you get called some choice names. Maybe you see on occasion the spreading whites of their eyes and their gnashing teeth. Or maybe you've just lost someone you thought was a friend. I don't know. But as you are smarting from the attack and licking your wounds, and just before you get mad and say some choice words of your own, just before the self-pity begins to creep in, just stop and remember this truth. What just happened there is the undeniable, verifying, thrilling truth that the Spirit of glory and the very Holy Spirit of God 
rest upon you. You are blessed indeed. Jesus is the example. He is the prototype. We take up our cross. We follow in his steps. And I will remind you, they spit in the very face of God. And he wore it like a badge of honor all the way to the cross. Because he was determined to do the will of his father. I borrowed really the title of the agony and the ecstasy from the rather well-known, it's a classic now, the biography, or auto, not autobiography, but the biography of Michelangelo that was written famously by the author Irving Stone, 1961, won all kinds of acclaim. A few years later, it was made into a movie. Uh, dramatically portraying what it was for Michelangelo to really be a bond slave to the church uh, wherein the Sistine Chapel in Vatican City, you know the story, he lays on his back and in excruciating uh, agony and cost to his health and almost his very life, he, he paints the ecstasy of, of the creation and the redemption of sinners on the ceiling of that chapel. I, I remember having the privilege of standing there looking up and seeing all of that glory and then on occasion reminded of what it took for this servant of the church to paint that. Irving Stone, the biographer, based his book almost entirely on more than 400 letters written by Michelangelo himself. So he moved to Rome. My understanding is, before he put pen to paper to make that book, The Agony and the Ecstasy, he spent four years going down literally to the quarry pits where the marble and stone was taken and given to the artisans of the day, both those that were carvers. He lived among them. He wanted to get his hands dirty. He wanted to experience himself something of what must have been the trials of Michelangelo, who would produce such great works of art. And I thought to myself, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul meant when he was writing in his own life, a biography of Jesus. Oh, that I may know him. Like Irving Stone wanted to know who Michelangelo really was. And he examined the writings. And he even entered into the sufferings. That I may know him, Apostle Paul would say. And the fellowship of his sufferings. Might I be so closely identified that I can know what it was that Jesus himself was enduring for me. May I be willing to endure for the gospel. Well, we need to move on. Now, I'm not quite sure how to take verse 15. I'll let you look at it. Is Peter serious here? <laughs> Does he think that there's some real danger among 
the believers, the scattered saints, remember, uh, make sure that none of you, he says, suffers as a murderer, a thief or an evildoer. That would be like me standing here this morning and saying, look, you're all members or most of you are actually formal members of Good Shepherd Church. And as a result of your association with us, I trust that you'll go through this next week and try not to murder anyone or steal anything or commit acts of evil. Or be a troublesome meddler. This verse, is this the use of irony or or even a tongue in cheek kind of thing? Is Peter employing a literary device here that would remind the reader of the obvious that murderers and thieves should suffer and suffer justly at that? If you're going to suffer, Peter is saying, don't let it be for wrongdoing, obviously, but because you're doing the will of God. He's already said doing right will bring suffering, but there is the glory of God in that. It's quite obvious, isn't it? Doing wrong will also bring suffering, but only that just punishment kind of thing under the civil authorities. In fact, let me say the first of the three evils, murder, well, all three of the evils with a fourth one mentioned, the three murder, stealing and sedition or evil doing were in Peter's day capital crimes. That's why there was a thief hanging on the cross next to Jesus. You could be put to death for that. Now, Peter, I think, is also saying you could be put to death as a Christian, too. In a fallen world, in some places, we just saw that last week. It can be a capital crime to preach Christ. Now, note that in such a severe list of crimes in verse 14, I mean, it's pretty heavy. Homicide, thievery, sedition. Peter then adds, fourthly, this sin of, my translation renders it troublesome meddler. A gossip. Someone who stirs up trouble about things that are not their business, nor their responsibility. Peter is saying, and and I suppose that this is a bit tongue-in-cheek, but it is also, you'll see, quite confrontational. Because Christians may not be notorious as murderers or thieves or evildoers, but Peter knew already, even in this early stage of church growth, that Christians can be notorious for being gossips, troublesome meddlers, people who just seem to get kicks out of stirring up controversy about things for which they have no business before the Lord. It is a very odd verse, and I can't be sure that I've rendered it as correctly as was intended by the Holy Spirit. But I hope I've not taken it too far afield. The contrast here is so great, is it not? The scriptures do that throughout. It's the manner of the Old Testament 
poetic writing to always be contrasting the end of the wicked over against the end of the righteous and how they prosper. Verse uh, 16 underscores again that the only legitimate form of suffering for a believer is that which glorifies God. Can I say that again? I think in this contrast between suffering because you own the name of Christ over against suffering because someone deserves to suffer, they're a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, that what he is saying to us as a broad and general principle is that the only legitimate form of suffering for a believer is that suffering which glorifies God. It means suffering according to the will of God. Another way of saying this is that the way a true believer responds to and endures all manner of difficult things is, in fact, our witness to the world. This is the context, in fact, for what follows. Verses 17 and 18. Have your eyes there. Peter creates in their minds in these two verses... A courtroom scene and says there will be a day for judging and it will be God himself who sits on the bench in this courtroom drama. It is Mr. and Mrs. Christian who are being examined at this moment. It begins, he says, with the household of God. He paraphrases Proverbs 1131. Let me read for you verses 30 and 31 of uh, in the in Proverbs 11. Where it says uh, in the wisdom of Solomon, listen carefully, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and he who wins souls is wise. And then this is the proverb that Peter quotes. If the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? He borrows that and then places it into the judgment of God to come upon all flesh. This is really, again, that familiar biblical motif, contrasting the rewards of the righteous with the wicked. But back to our text. Peter is saying, we righteous ones, we who have received the gift of eternal life, nevertheless, we do fail in so many ways, do we not? And that's why in our time of judgment, there'll be a big flash in the pan for me, I know. All that wood, that hay, that stubble will be burned off under God's scrutiny. Thank goodness, it'll be gone forever. There is no condemnation, but every wrong thing, every failure dissipated by a purifying flame, not the flame of divine wrath. Because, you see, if it depended on our works alone... Well, none of us would make it. Peter says that it is with difficulty that we make it. Not that we are trying to earn our way there, but because we are, as he said earlier, the chosen of God. Those who have obeyed the gospel, we nevertheless get to glory with difficulty. Because all those that belong to the Lord will, in fact... Suffer. In contrast, there's that contrast again. Those that don't make it, don't make it through judgment, 
Don't make it, he says, for only one reason. It's the last part of verse 17. You need to see this. He asks the question, and it is not simply rhetorical. He expects us to know the answer. What will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? We know what the outcome is. For any and all who do not obey the gospel of God, it is eternal judgment. So, dear child of God, as one who has obeyed the gospel of God, the summary statement, which is the therefore of verse 19, is an anchor for the suffering saint. And I want you to look at what it says. Therefore. Those also who suffer according to what? You tell me what it says. The will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Now, there's just a few brief but important observations on this text. I like to think of this text as sort of the Romans 8.28 of Peter's epistle, if you think about it that way. We know that God works all things together for good to those who love him and to those who are calling to, called according to his purpose. And, and Peter is saying, therefore, all, so all those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. God's ability... As creator, no less, to work all things, in particular, painful, hurting things, together for good. These hard things are the will of God. Who wants to run from the will of God? Well, frankly, I've sought to do that many times when the will of God was some hard thing. You and I do not ever need to fear. The consequences of being in the will of God. I think we only need to get a little nervous if we know we're outside of God's will. If being in the will of God, doing the will of God, we discover is costly and painful, Peter would say, so be it. There is a glory resting upon you. And when Jesus comes... We'll all become, as I said, holy rollers shouting hallelujah. Furthermore, let me mention before we close all together, this is the only verse in the whole New Testament where the title for God is that of creator. Now, creator God is a constant theme in all of the books of the Old Testament. This is the only place in the New Testament where the word creator appears. And we know, of course, that every word is inspired of God, so it's here for a purpose. The word creator, as in creator of heaven and earth and all things, as I said, is so much the theme of the Old Testament that Peter is reminding them to consider God's amazing fidelity to his people, Israel, in Old Testament times. 
He's reminding them by calling God Creator here that when God came to Abraham with a covenant promise that he would bear a son in his old age out of Sarah's atrophied womb, Jehovah began his incredible claims with the phrase to Abraham. Maybe you remember, I am the Lord, your maker, the maker of heaven and earth, creator. Is anything too hard for me? Is anything too hard for your creator, folks? I didn't hear you. No. And certainly it is not too hard a thing for God to give you joy in your trials and bring His glory and the presence of His own Holy Spirit to rest upon you. So Peter says, for the very reason God does this, I can continue to do what is right. When I first read the verse, and I've read it through many years, where it says, and trust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. I thought it was talking about God doing what is right. Now, that much is true. God will always do that which is right. And you can trust him to do that. But what Peter is saying is you suffer according to the will of God. What you need to do, really, the only thing you need to know is you can entrust your very soul to a faithful creator. And it should be translated this way, this way. And so just keep on doing the right, which is the will of God. Martin Luther understood this. The body, what's the worst that man can do. The body they may kill. But God's truth abideth still. It's your soul that matters. And no one, no Taliban, no maniac next door, no crazy person on the street, no hateful Muslim or Hindu, or any other enemy of the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the worst they can do is what they did to those ten workers this last week. And having read most of their testimonies, I can say it seems as though most of them are this morning in glory. It has been decades of time ago in the history of early missionary work that a servant of the Lord journaled his experience among a particular heathen tribe of people where the gospel, even over years, had only claimed a few souls among the majority of the pagans. This visiting missionary was introduced by the tribal members to a young slave girl that the few Christians there had nicknamed the child apostle. She gained the title for the zeal with which she spoke to Jesus, about Jesus to others. Her steady persistence had actually won several converts to Christ. But her faithfulness brought her a persecution almost too brutal to relate, to have us think about. And the record says that she was introduced to this visiting missionary that day 
And he simply could not help but notice her face, her neck, arms and legs so scarred and twisted and disfigured by the many stripes and blows that she had received just because she would speak for Jesus. And his eyes welled with tears. And he said to her, My child, how could you bear this? But she looked up at him with some bewilderment in her eyes and said, Sir, Do you not like to suffer for Christ? Do you not like to suffer for Christ? Stand together with me, please. I recognize this was a particularly long sermon, wasn't it? And you are so patient to persevere with me through the challenge of these verses. And while the instruments will pray the great, uh, play the great hymn face to face in just a moment, that's where it all makes sense. Face to face, rejoicing in his presence. When banished are grief and pain, when the crooked ways are straightened and the dark things shall be plain. We're living, remember, in the meantime. Let me pray for the church of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you, brothers and sisters, and pray the same things for your pastor. Let's bow before him. Oh, Lord, make us more bold. To share and to proclaim Christ to others more than ever. And Lord, should we be reviled, we will know with joy the wonder of having your own glory and Holy Spirit rest upon us. While heads are bowed, I have this question coming also from the text. What do you think will be the end of all those who have not obeyed the gospel? Have you obeyed the gospel? The command of the gospel is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To trust in him alone and his work on the cross as your only hope of heaven. Before we leave this place, I ask anyone who has not yet obeyed the gospel to believe and trust in Christ. Will you believe right now? Will you believe right now? Say, Lord, I believe. To the rest of us. Let's be willing to suffer reproach. Lord, make us willing to be reviled. Lord, help us to know it is a joyous thing to suffer with you. 
that we may also rejoice in your presence. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,